Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 1.6, The Life and Times of Pender, part 2. Last time, which was some weeks ago, we introduced Pender of the Mercians to you and talked about the political events leading up to his first victory over the West Saxons in 628. We heard about how Edwin of Northumbria had rapidly established himself as the new Brett Walder and a Christian one at that. So this week, we'll hear about Pender's career. We'll discuss the times Pender lived in but actually go well beyond his times too and get a shufti on and try to move through the forest that is the 7th century. In 628, Pender had established his southern borders with the West Saxons. To his north was the powerful and threatening Northumbria and its newly Christian king, Edwin. To his west, the highlands of Wales. To his east lay a mess of minor kings, like the north and south Guire, Lindsay, the Wixner, the Herefina. I could go on. Put together, all these groups fell under a conglomeration that you might call the Middle Angles. And beyond these petty kingdoms lay further east the kingdom of the East Anglians, who viewed these petty kingdoms with the same intense, caring concentration as a lion watches a wounded wildebeest. Pender was a man driven by the ancient driver of the pagan, Angle and tribal warrior and war leader. To defeat and cow your neighbours, force them to pay tribute. To win treasure for your followers, and in so doing, build the glory of your name, pulling yet more warriors to your side. And so it would then go on. In this, Pender was to be enormously successful, but ultimately was doomed to end in failure if the victories ever dried up. By the end of the 7th century, Anglo-Saxon kings had recognised that this model couldn't be sustained, that they have to find a different way to rule and organise their new kingdoms. By the end of the century, they were well down that path. Edwin of Northumbria was a clever and successful man. He and many other Anglo-Saxon kings realised that in order to establish their kingship and control territories that were becoming progressively larger, they needed to do something differently. They could no longer be seen as simply a tribal war leader like the good old days. They needed tools, and they needed legitimacy. As with Aethelbert of Kent, Edwin realised in a way Pender never did that Christianity offered an opportunity. The Old Testament presented a style of kingship that was divinely ordained. It endorsed an imperial style of government that had lawmaking and tax-raising powers inherent in it. It gave kings access to a literate clergy, letters, 
and the ability to communicate at distance. Edwin also believed that the Christian god's aid in battle would be much more effective than the old pagan gods, in which he was to be sadly mistaken. Anglo-Saxon leaders also drew from more secular sources, namely the old Roman ways of doing things. The Anglo-Saxon kings had slowly realised that the Romans provided a model for them, not just in the powers they gave their emperors, but the kudos and the reputation that came with that vanished all-powerful empire. And so Edwin looked to emulate the Romans whenever he could, and Bede describes one example of how this worked. Quote, so great was his majesty in his realm that not only were banners carried before him in battle, but even in times of peace. Riding between his cities, rural estates and provinces with his thanes, a standard-bearer would always precede him. When walking anywhere through public open spaces, the type of standard the Romans called a tufa and the English a thuf would be carried before him. We have no evidence of whether Pender tried this approach or not. There is some unverifiable evidence that actually in 630 he raided Exeter in the British Kingdom of Devon, which would very much emphasise the traditional war leader grab a bit of treasure and give your followers some rings approach. The story goes that the Welsh king of Gwyneth, Cadwalla, turned up to help his British Devonian pals. But the result was not slaughter, but actually Pender and Cadwalla getting together and making a deal. Now that might seem an odd combination. Christian Celtic Welsh king of Gwyneth and pagan Anglo-Saxon king Pender. And both of these guys had kingdoms that could so easily come into conflict. But Pender appeared to have very little interest in religion as a driver of his politics or diplomacy. And also it appeared that two of them had a common enemy. Just as Pender was threatened by the growing power of Northumbria, so was Cadwalla threatened by Edwin of Northumbria's raid on Anglesey. The Isle of Anglesey lies off the northwest coast of Wales and is essential to Gwyneth's health and survival, because most of the rest of Gwyneth is mountainous, and though remarkably and stunningly beautiful, not a great place to grow cereal crops. Anglesey was Gwyneth's breadbasket. And so, although we don't know if Pender and Cadwalla actually met at Exeter, they must have met somewhere, because together they hatched a plan to put Edwin and Northumbria to the sword. Cadwalla does not get a good press from Bede, who described him as so barbarian in mind and habits that he did not even spare women or innocent children, but rather with beast-like ferocity brought everyone to a death by torments, and for a considerable time ravaged and laid waste their provinces. He was intending to eradicate the entire race of the English from within the bounds of Britain. Now Bede is cross with Cadwalla because he had the nerve to take on his beloved Northumbrians but also, more importantly, because he had made no attempt to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity. The last sentence in the quote is interesting. It sounds as though Pender was playing with fire in dealing with Cadwalla but Pender was interested in victory and treasure and was pretty confident he could look after himself. So, in 633, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us 
This year, King Edwin was slain by Cadwalla and Pender at Hatfield Chase on the second before the Ides of October, and he reigned seventeen years. And his son Osfrith was also slain with him. And after that went Cadwalla and Pender and laid waste the whole country of the Northumbrians. The Battle of Hatfield Chase was a notice to all of England that Pender had arrived. And a new power was abroad in the land. It was a disaster for Northumbria. Its king dead, its enemies wandering around, burning and pillaging, all the way over to the east coast and north to Banborough. Northumbria split back again into two client kingdoms, Bernicia and Dyra. Bishop Paulinus and Edwin's Christian wife fled to Kent. Pender had done his job, got what he wanted, which included a hostage of Edwin's family, and then he was gone. Hatfield Chase put not only Northumbria's prestige under threat, but also the status of Christianity. However, remember the sons of Aethelfrith that had fled to Dalriata and spent seventeen years there. Edwin's misfortune was their opportunity, and within a year they were back in Northumbria. Pender appears to have lost interest by this stage and is in Mercia, but Cadwalla had not, and so in six thirty-four, the two. Faced each other at a place called Heaven Field on Hadrian's Wall. I can report, gentle listeners, that I have been there, and a fantastic place it is to come across as you walk the wall. But Oswald's surprising victory at Heaven Field was seen by Bede as divine judgment and a vindication of the power of his religion. Oswald, though with a smaller army, planted a large wooden cross in the centre of his line and refused to move in the face of the Welsh attack. When the Welsh Finally, broke against the Northumbrian shield wall. Cadwalla fled, but was hunted down and killed. Oswald was end up as a saint, and there's no doubt he's almost as important to the success of Christianity as were Edwin and Ethelbert. Oswald sent to his friends in Dalriata to send him holy men to help, and over the next eight years of his reign, Oswald did everything he could to continue Edwin's work to embed Christianity in Northumbria. And as widely in England as possible. His secular success in his short reign was also remarkable. He reunited Northumbria into one kingdom. He subjected Lindsey, the large British kingdom south of the Humber, currently called Lincolnshire. He's reputed to have captured Edinburgh and claimed overlordship of the Picts in northern Scotland. He showed he could be ruthless. He had Edwin's son murdered at Pender's court. And despite Pender's victory, therefore at Hatfield Chase, Oswald was soon the sixth Bretwalder referred to by Bede, and Northumbrian power and influence was as strong as it has always been. So much so, in fact, that Oswald stood as godfather to the King of Wessex when he was converted to Christianity. This is, of course, significant, in that it meant that only Mercia's ruler was now pagan. The Saxons had been converted as well. The East Anglian kings had now also accepted Christianity, and in fact, the East Anglians were so carried away by the whole thing that one of their kings, Siebert, actually retired early while still a young man to go to a monastery. Fate was sadly to play a nasty trick on Siebert, and he was not to die there in a monastery in peace, as it happens. But more of that later. Anyway, it meant that only Mercia and the politically insignificant South Saxons. Held out in the face of Christianity. It's also significant 
because the conversion of the King of Wessex gives credence to Oswald's imperium. Anglo-Saxon kings had no doubt that accepting another king as godfather implied political inferiority. We simply don't know what Penda was doing in these years. It's pretty clear that Oswald's success meant a loss of Penda's authority elsewhere in England. It could well be that through these years Penda focused on his internal affairs, of bringing the disparate parts and people of his kingdom together. He maintained good relationships with the British Kingdom to the west in Wales with the kingdoms of Powys and Gwynedd. And it also seems that Penda didn't reign alone, sharing the throne with his brother Eua. But a showdown at some point would seem to have been inevitable. When it came, that showdown seems not to have come at Penda's instigation, but at Oswald's. After all, Mercia was the only kingdom that stood out against his overlordship. It's difficult to know. We have no confirmation of the location of the battle that followed, although the conjecture is that the town of Oswestry in the Welsh borders is derived from Oswald's tree and refers to the Northumbrian king. But the Battle of Maserfelth in 642, which is what Bede and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle call the battle, did not go with form. Oswald was the primary ruler in England and for eight years had been supreme in all he did. Later writers characterised the battle as Christian against pagan, light against dark. But the truth is that Penda's army was both pagan and Christian, since it included his Christian allies from Gwynedd and Powys. And Penda's motivation was never religion. I mentioned in the last episode that Penda gave his sons the right to choose their own religion. Who can say what the motivation was for Oswald, quite probably both earthly power and spiritual power, but the result of the battle was complete defeat for the Northumbrians. Oswald was hacked to pieces and various body parts mounted on a pole. Maserfelth left Penda as the most powerful king in England. Bede couldn't bring himself to give Penda the recognition of having imperium over all Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Maybe that reflects reality. But it could equally be Bede's reluctance to promote the life of a pagan warrior. But for the next decade or so, what we know of Penda shows him as arbiter of Anglo-Saxon England, the man whose opinion had to be sought or considered. What we also need to remember is that our main source of information, Bede, had a role that Penda had to fulfil. Penda had to be the relentless, aggressive pagan warrior who tested the resolve of good Christian rulers and fighters. And there's therefore a lot of colour around that that we miss. But what can be read between the lines is that Penda worked with the other kingdoms in many different ways, not just with the pagan sword. There were marriage alliances with the Northumbrians, for example. So Oswald's brother, Oswu, was installed as king of Bernicia, and Oswu's daughter was married to Paada, Penda's son, which sadly wasn't to turn out to be the happiest of marriages, as we'll find out a bit later. So we also know that Penda's sister was married to the King of Wessex. And we know that soon after, or maybe before Maserfeld, the said King of Wessex took the brave, if possibly foolish, step of repudiating Penda's sister and sending her back home. Before you could say Jack Robinson, the brave but foolish king, had been driven out of Wessex and taken refuge at the court of the King of East Anglia. But three years later he was back, and we know of no intervention or objection from Penda. It's a curious episode, 
because it suggests that Penda's authority and control over the other kingdoms was less than perfect, that there were ups and downs in Penda's authority that we can only guess at. However, with Northumbria subdued for the moment at least, Penda could turn his attention to that conglomeration of peoples in the East Midlands that had sat between Mercia and East Anglia, broadly described as the Middle Angles. Both Penda and the East Anglian kings struggled for supremacy and influence there. An East Anglian princess was married to the king of the Southern Guire, for example. Now, this is an issue that Penda wanted settled once and for all. He had three sons, Paada, Wolfhere and Aethelred. His plan was to install Paada as king of the Middle Angles under his kingship. This approach of shared rule was common, as we've seen. Penda himself seems to have ruled together with his brother Eowa. Within East Anglia itself, a similar situation seems also to have prevailed, with the king there, Siebert, ruling alongside others. Now, Siebert is an interesting case. He'd been forced to flee East Anglia and had lived for a while in Francia, where he'd been converted. And he's part of a very broad thread in the first two centuries of conversion that these converts took their religion very seriously indeed. Siebert set up a new diocese, a school for children, established monasteries, all of which was common practice. But what was unusual about Siebert was that there he was, lord of all he surveyed from about 630. And then suddenly he gave it all up and went to live in a monastery and handed the reins of power across to his kinsmen. This is not an isolated example. Siebert was not alone in this. At least two kings of Wessex in the 8th century, for example, were to hand in their notice for the king job, travel to Rome, and die there as monks. It's something that would be impossible to conceive of in later centuries. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To a degree, Penda might not have considered such a thing, but he would not necessarily have disapproved. Although hailed as the great pagan scourge of the Christian kingdoms, that's largely because that's the role Bede wanted him to play in his history. In fact, Penda not only allowed his sons to make their own choices, he allowed Christian priests to enter Mercia and preach as much as they would like. Maybe one of the reasons Penda doesn't attract quite the same level of vituperation from Bede as did Cadwalla is that according to Bede, Penda's contempt was reserved for Christians who didn't live by the precepts of their religion. Here's Bede on that very topic. Nor did King Penda obstruct the preaching of the word among his people, the Mercians, if any were willing to hear it. But on the contrary, he hated and despised those whom he perceived 
not to perform the works of faith when they had once received the faith, saying, They were contemptible and wretched who did not obey their God in whom they believed. So, Siebert probably at least attracted his approval in that sense. Not that it saved the lad. In the early 650s, Pender invaded and the East Anglians panicked. They dragged poor old Siebert out of his monastery and insisted that he lead their army. Siebert doesn't seem to have been given any choice in the matter whatsoever, but he did at least steadfastly refuse to hold a weapon and held only a rod and no doubt prayed for victory and stuff. It did the East Anglians no good. They were put to the sword by Pender, Siebert with it. As he died, I wonder if he cried, You see, I told you I was better off in a monastery. Siebert's successor went the same way within a year. Another victim of the warrior king. In the unstable world of 7th century politics, Pender continued as he'd started. Whatever the marriages and relationships outside the walls we know about, his mission in life was the glorification of his reputation, his people and the reward of his followers. We know of raids not only into East Anglia, but more into Northumbria, from which no doubt he returned laden with riches. Resistance from the Northumbrians centred on Bernicia and its king Oswu, brother of Oswald. And he kept the Northumbrian light burning. When in 655, Pender gathered an apparently massive army, using all the power he had built up over the previous decades. He had an army with 30 allies and clients from Wales, East Anglia and including Dyra, the other half of Northumbria. The invasion initially seemed to go well and not to have met any great dangers, but equally not had the success that Pender had hoped. And as he returned south, Oswu, who he hadn't been able to bring to battle, Oswu followed him. As he went, Pender shed allies like dead skin. His lack of success appears to have attacked the bond that held those allies and clients together. So Cadfile of Gwyneth, for example, disappearing with his men during the night. In crossing the river Wenwade, a name we can't identify, but which could have been near Leeds, Pender was attacked. The Darens held off and sat on their hands and watched as Oswu attacked, waiting for the outcome. And this was one battle too far for Pender. His army was defeated and Pender, the warrior king, was killed alongside it. There is something rather magnificent, if also totally brutal, about Pender and his story. He's useful to bead in his story of the conversion as the kind of universal baddie. None of the other sources of information we have approved of him either, so we only ever have the opposing view. But here was a leader who lived in the old Germanic tradition of the warrior king. His religion seemed to fit with that perspective and his refusal to convert, even in the light of his son's conversion during his own lifetime, has an impressive honesty about it. Pender made no attempt to consolidate the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms into one, and in fact, nor did any of the other Anglo-Saxon kings at this time. Although there was an understanding that they shared a common bond, all the rulers of the 7th and 8th centuries viewed their political environment as that of a number of kingdoms. There was no concept of moving towards one unified state. 
but despite his focus on the business of war, Pender without doubt achieved a lasting legacy. Northumbria was to re-establish its dominance for a while, but not to quite the same extent. The consolidation of the Magnesata, the Huissa, the Middle Angles into one kingdom of Mercia was not to be reversed. Pender established a powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdom that would dominate England for much of the 8th century and under offer reach the apex of its glory. As I say, Northumbria and Oswu, the last of Bede's Brett Walders, did for a while re-establish their predominance. Pender's son Paada ruled as a puppet for a while in Mercia, only to be murdered through the treachery of his wife, Oswu's daughter. Now, I've been unable to find out what this treachery actually entailed in detail, but it doesn't sound as though the Paada household had been a happy one, despite Paada's enthusiastic Christianity. It was another of Pender's sons, Wolf here, who would steady the Mercian ship. After the disaster at Winwade, he was spirited away and hidden, while for three years Oswu ruled in Mercia until a Mercian rebellion in 658 re-established Pender's line and put Wolfhere back on the Mercian throne. In fact, what really did for Northumbria was partly Pender's intransigence, but also defeat at the hands of their Celtic neighbours. From Pender's death until 685, Northumbria profited from the steady expansion northwards deep into Scotland, and also by having a series of competent and successful rulers. But in 685, one of those factors came to an end, when the Northumbrians were lured into a battle by the Picts and slaughtered along with their king. The independence of the Picts would never again be seriously threatened by Northumbria. The second factor, the quality of Northumbrian rulers, would end at the start of the 8th century. Poor old Bede, writing in the mid-8th century, looked back at the 7th century as something of a golden age. Penda does seem like something of an old story rather than a new one at this stage. He feels very much like the last of his kind rather than a signpost to the future, and that's not just about his religion. It's more, really, in the nature of his leadership and of his kingship. Pender's traditional view of the role of the king was changing all around him. Pender and traditional Germanic war leaders were surrounded by a swarm of companions, men who were close to their leader. They gave the leader power. He rewarded them by leading them to victory and riches. But as the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms became more consolidated, more settled, that attitude was changing. So I'm going to use a quote from Alfred the Great. Clearly this is anachronistic, given that Alfred will not hit the history of England for a couple of centuries. But his words reflect the way that things were changing by the end of the 7th century, how Anglo-Saxon kings were beginning to see their responsibility to organise territorially based kingdoms for peace and prosperity, rather than leading a tribe to riches and treasure. So here are those words of Alfred. In the case of the king, the resources and tools with which to rule are that he have his land fully manned. He must have praying men, fighting men and working men. You know also that without these tools, no king may make his ability known. 
Another aspect of his resources is that he must have the means of support for his tools, the three classes of men. These then are the means of their support land to live on, gifts, weapons, food, ale, and clothing. This is the first written appearance of the idea of the three classes of men that would remain popular throughout the Middle Ages. For a while, raiding other kingdoms gave Pender the resources he needed to reward his followers. But after a while, he was almost bound to run into somebody bigger than he was. And with the large territory he'd won, Pender's successors and other Anglo Saxon kings needed a better way to defend their borders and organise their resources. Partly as a result of this, we begin to see the continuing stratification and division of society, just as Alfred pointed out. We've seen that the archaeological record shows the development of an elite through the 5th and 6th centuries, and this is accentuated through the 7th, as these kingdoms seek to organise themselves more effectively. So on the one hand, we're beginning to see the slide of the status of the churl, from the free, weapon-bearing warrior to an unfree peasant. Churl itself had never been a negative word, but now it starts to become so, to become derogatory, all the way at some point to the modern word churl and churlish. More and more, the churl now has a role to provide food and resources for the higher status warriors, as Alfred described. We've spoken in previous episodes about the tribute centres that we can see springing up, in Mercia's case, an example being the royal villa at Tamworth. I mentioned that after the defeat at Winwood and Pender's death, his followers spirited his son Wolfir away. Now they did this by pretending to be peasants who had been bringing food to the army. They couldn't be fighting men, therefore. They were just peasants, just churls, not important enough to be bothered with. And that's how they escaped. It illustrates also how, even in Pender's day, there were men whose sole role was to feed the army. We've moved away from the boatloads of warriors out to win themselves land and work that land. At the same time, the role of the warrior changes. We see the development of a structured nobility with specific obligations. And so we come to the word thane. Thane is a Germanic word, which developed from the word jusith, the Germanic word for a companion, comes in Latin. Thane gets used in a number of different contexts and ways, but military service and high status are both always inherent in it. Anglo-Saxon kings realised that the better way to marshal their resources was simply to delegate to their great men, to their companions, their thanes. And so increasingly, they gave out gifts of land rather than gold or rings. Thanes could therefore use that land to keep themselves fed and watered for most of the time, unless their king called them to his great hall. Thanes would then have to come when called, and they'd have to come suitably armed and bringing other fighting men with them. This land that came from the king in these early days was usually only a temporary gift, just for the lifetime of the recipient, not an hereditary one. It was called lane land, because it was loaned, temporary, and the thane had to provide something in return. 
there is simply no surviving documentary evidence that allows us to understand secular landholding in early Anglo-Saxon England. But it's highly, highly likely that the Anglo-Saxons were already quite familiar with the concept of hereditary ownership of land and that there were many greater and lesser families that held greater and lesser amounts of land in perpetuity rather than from the king. This kind of land was called Falkland, land that couldn't be alienated from the kin of the holder but wasn't recorded anywhere because it was held before the time when writing was around, held purely by custom. There's another tier that emerges as well, the Olderman. The word comes from the Germanic older, meaning the head of the clan. And again, as kingdoms become larger, kings can't spend all their time speaking to all their thanes. There are simply too many of them to get around. No, they need someone to manage groups of them. And so members of the royal family might be made aldermen with their own land, but authority also over a group of thanes in the form of a territorial district. This solved a few problems, actually. Just going back a bit, I think we've mentioned that there is as yet no tradition of primogeniture in Anglo-Saxon England, i.e. the automatic passing of inheritance of land or title to the eldest son. Any member of the royal family might be deemed by the elders and the wise people, i.e. the Witten, to be the best person to follow the dead or dying king. So the suitable bunch of candidates were called athelings, specifically from athel, the word for noble. This could be inconvenient. You've just become king, you notice all your siblings and cousins are looking at you sullenly and testing the edges of their saxes meaningfully. It doesn't quite get to the state of the Ottomans, where each succession meant a bloodletting of all the other royal sons in the harem, but it could be a little nerve-wracking. Making your athelings aldermen had some advantages. They were family, you gave them a role, you kept them inside the tent, as it were. Another problem is solved by the Ealderman position. A king of Mercia like Pender now had all these sub-kings knocking about, Chowissa, Magonsaiten, and that sort of thing, which is uncomfortable. And what happens in the 8th century is that the powerful kings like Offer of Mercia gently, or quite possibly none too gently, persuade these sub-kings they don't really want to be called king. They'd really much prefer to be called Ealderman. And the king of the Chowissa takes the hint and becomes an Ealderman. Finally, Ealderman in the 9th century and beyond will become an official, royal or otherwise, whose job is related to a specific territory, the Shire. And we'll come to the Shire in some later episode, along hopefully with our friends Gandalf and the Bagshots and so on. So the point of all this to summarise is that Pender, however colourful and in-your-face, and despite his legacy of a united, powerful, core Mercian kingdom, was part of the past rather than the future. His brand of warrior leader was by no means finished. The personal relationship and the need for reward from leader to follower never goes away. We just begin to give it a fancy name like patronage. But the emphasis shifts from the king being simply a giver of rings to his followers, responsible solely for his kin, to the concept of a king with a wider range of responsibilities, which extends across the lands and peoples that he rules and who delegates his authority to high-status followers with a relationship based on land in return for service. OK, good. Not necessarily where I expected to end up today, but that works fine. Over the next few episodes, we'll seriously try to get moving on deep into the 8th century, but we do have other considerations to deal with in the meantime. 
the conversion, the economy, that sort of thing. Anyway, hope that sounds like a hoot. Good luck, everyone, and have a great couple of weeks.